Hello and welcome to the Art Monthly Talk Show. I'm Chris McCormack and today I'm joined by writer and artist Morgan Quaintance, Stephanie Schwartz, who is Associate Professor of History of Art at University College London, and art researcher and educator Connell McStrabick. Connell will be discussing the work of Jamie Crewe as Stephanie reviews two new books, David Levi Strauss's Photography and Belief and Jörg Kohlberg's Neoliberal Realism. But first, we'll start with Morgan Quaintance's text, Looking Back in Anger Part 2, which, picking up from his previous article in the December-January issue, focuses on the belated political turn in curating and the scramble to co-opt marginal voices without addressing the continuing structural inequalities across the art sector. Morgan, I thought an interesting place to start would be to look at the word activism in your text, which charts how the word's meaning has changed over the last 10 years. To an extent, the practice and historical legacies of activism have largely underpinned your thinking, but you also argue that the term has been overmined by institutions and drained of meaning too. Well, I suppose with most of my writing for the past sort of five years, and with these two pieces, is to try to track and analyse this uh, shift in consciousness or shift in behavioural patterns in the art world. Uh, basically, it's a move from being uh, attentive to um, things of like aesthetic concern, maybe, or, um, and a move from them to a more kind of politicised um, uh, value system or political value system. And I was, what I've been doing is like trying to delve into the nature of what the political means and how it's enacted in, 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 this, uh, in this term. So as part of that, I wanted to analyse language and how language is playing into this adoption of politics or a political agenda by, and, and I'm broadly speaking about a kind of established centre of the art world. And one of the ways I felt that it has been used, it was in this sort of redefin subtle redefinition of activism. Now, in the early uh, 2000, uh, 2010s, we witnessed this attempt to sort of change the meaning or alter the sort of um, alter the meaning of the term choreography for a while. So the idea, you know, they're trying, people, there was a, there's an effort to bring contemporary dance into the art world. And then you, suddenly there was this fad of curators talking about um, choreographing space or so people choreographing how you're going to move through a certain zone. And um, uh, we've had the same thing, I think, with activism. Now, I mean, the definition I used in the article was like activism is broadly defined as, um, you know, uh, campaigning for or um, agitating for some sort of change, yeah? to change a given system, set of circumstances or conditions. And rather than that kind of broad definition and the activity that it encompasses being taken up, I felt that this, the art world has, this, this established centre really, has really taken up activism and used it as a, a, a euphemism really for just um, uh, redressing uh, demographic oversights and what I mean by that is like saying well we've just been, we've had a monocultural sector so what we're going to do now is ensure that we have a like a multicultural sector and then we'll just roll on as usual so uh, you know you could say let's take the example of Tate I mean it's just there 
that logic in relation to an institution like Tate would be like this. Uh, Tate has been rolling along for so many years. Uh, we don't have enough curators of colour. Let's have some curators of colour and then we'll just continue rolling as we were, were before. But now we've um, redressed the imbalance that's been hanging over our heads all this time. And uh, what I was trying to argue and have been trying to argue throughout many, many different articles is that this is another, this is a symptom of this broad performance of political engagement. So rather than trying to alter how systems and structures are functioning, especially when they have like exploitative relationships to uh, people with limited economic means or people from marginal subject positions and then all the rest of it, instead of doing that, what they're trying to do is alter the way it looks alter the way, um, alter the optics of a given system so that you have, it's all basically like a facelift, you know, rather than um, uh, the thing itself being altered, uh, the way it looks has been changed and that's supposed to be a significant enough alteration. Uh, yeah, you, mentioned, yeah. sorry, you mentioned Michelle Alexander, which I think is prescient there where she writes in the new Jim Crow cosmetic diversity, which I think really picks up what your argument is saying. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of, it's difficult because it's a, it's an over, it's a broad dynamic, which is essentially a kind of hypocrisy uh, and, a, uh, and a kind of a sort of duplicitousness that is basically a condition of being double. And there are many, many different ways of expressing this. And one of them is this, and so there's many different ways of expressing this. And because it's not like hardened into a set um, body of theoretical tools. Everybody's finding different ways to express the same phenomenon. And this term cosmetic diversity does a good job, I think, of, uh, of explaining what I just tried to, to, to um, categorize, is that rather than the system changing, uh, you just uh, change the personnel who are administering the same system. Mm. And, and if people, uh, you know, the tertiary glance at any given system, uh, but by somebody who's not really that concerned, will say, ah, no, things are different. Mm. Things are looking up. But uh, in actual fact, if you look... Maybe then let's talk a little bit about the exhibitions themselves then, which you feel have produced an image of optical diversity without really addressing deeper or system. Yeah, okay. One of the things that I've, I've been trying, I've been looking at, which I didn't really have space to track in the article, so maybe this is a thing that can... Um, be an addendum really to and a companion to the article is that looking at how uh, black artists uh, or the black experience has made its way into the curatorial frame. Now for me it's been still it's the same register again of like um, it's about redressing imbalances and so everything seems to be pitched at a kind of retrospective angle and we seem to be vis revisiting the late 80s, early 90s. And uh, so the first, I think, major um, curatorial endeavour was the exhibition called This Place Is Here by Nick Aitkins, a curator, Nick Aitkins. Now, this exhibition, so the, the Nick Aitkins is a, a white curator and the exhibition is essentially about um, the black artists in the 19, I think the, the subtitle is The Work of Black Artists in the 1980s, in 1980s Britain. So um, one of the things that I felt was interesting about this is that the 1980s for black artists seemed to emerge as this um, 
there's this uh, worthy cause, you know, uh, there's a BBC program that emerged with Sonia Boyce talking about it. And it, it, it emerges as sort of like the most covered, overlooked period ever. You know, it was like every, almost yearly, there was somebody coming out saying, this error has been overlooked. <laughs> and this is the book, television program, exhibition that's going to tell you about it. And, you know, that's all well and good. I'm not saying people shouldn't focus on overlooked periods of time. There are many, many different overlooked periods of time. But why was this emphasis being placed on this decade? And I think it was because the decade itself is, is, a, is a sort of context for this heroic declaration of saying, now we've redressed the imbalances. Because mm. they can frame the 80s as a, just this general call for inclusion. And then when they revisit it, they can then say, look, we've done it. Or mm. say, we, we still haven't done it, but we need to continue along these lines. One of my issues with uh, This Place Is Here and some of the other exhibitions that came up, um, there was a f another exhibition called Get Up, Stand Up Now, which was at uh, Somerset House, which was curated by Zach Ove. It was, at, again, looking at the 1980s and early 90s, but from a kind of West London Caribbean perspective, is that, um, you know, they... How can I explain it? They all seem to have a very... Um, like I say, this sort of reductive, um, retrospective um, uh, impulse and energy that wasn't connecting to the present day. And it almost seemed to me like we, the, the issue is about who is in control of this and who is framing what's being expressed. Now you have Nick Aitkins, who is a white curator, organizing an exhibition, a retrospective of black artists. Then you have Somerset House, is largely run by a, a white curatorial workforce, is commissioning or uh, soliciting Zach Ove uh, to do an exhibition that's looking at like the Caribbean artists uh, from like a West London perspective. Now, this is not necessarily a race issue. You could just move out, shift around these so-called marginal subject positions. Let's take it, let's change it, and, and, and in the place of black people, put women there, yeah? Mm. If we can think about a similar push to, uh, uh, like, enfranchise or give platforms to women artists that were overseen by men, right, then I think we would end up in the same reductive category. You'd have a lot of male, like, let's say a male curator saying, let's have a look at Betty Friedan and the feminine mystique, or let's, look at, let's really explore what Jermaine Greer was saying in the female unit. Mm. And, and you're like, but for feminists now, they might be like, that's really unimportant to us and it's not really pertinent uh, information, doesn't really connect with what we're saying. But for like the man researching feminism who doesn't understand it, who's just read a couple of surveys, they're like, oh, this is really interesting. Mm. And that kept, that's what it felt like to me when I was seeing these, um, these surveys of like black, art, black artists that were always centred in the 1980s. It seemed to me like this is an exhibition by somebody who who's not familiar with this community, who's not familiar with the expressions of black, of black artists, and is just doing a bit of archival research with a couple of World of Art books or something like that. And they've come up with this, this, same, um, this same epoch that they deem worthy of um, revisitation. You know, my, myself, I was part of a commission that was um, uh, uh, 
uh, imagined by an organization called the Independent Cinema Office, which was asking black filmmakers to look back at the black um, film workshop. And I was like, look, I'm not really that interested in the black film workshop in the 1980s. But yeah, I'm a black filmmaker. You know, can't I just make some films now that are dealing with stuff? But so it just seemed to be that the, uh, the imagination for expression of black artists was being set by um, a subject position that wasn't native to the people expressing it. And I felt like that's an imbalance that can exist anywhere. Like if, if it was a load of straight people organizing queer exhibitions, you'd have the same thing. Yeah. And so um, uh, I think that's how we're getting this more reductive um, coverage of, of things where they seem like they're kind of not relevant or that, that on the one level, they seem like they're not relevant and on the other, they seem to fit perfectly with this agenda of just chatting about like having broad demographics and like mm. um, uh, um, making sure that organizations and institutions are now multicultural. And also there's a kind of a way in which historicization of identity positions enables it to become a dis to yeah. kind of seen as an exhibition. I think, yeah. you know, those organizations you point to, uh, they're more like the radical organization, those uh, people like uh, the squatters, advisory service, for instance, and other kinds of organizations like United Voices of the World, it's harder to picture those being seen in the same historical uh, way or like in a way that could be addressed as discourse in an exhibition. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny because it's still happening. Chisholm, there's a, there's a new doctorate that's been announced, a collaboration between Kingston and Chisholm where they're asking people to look back at free exhibitions that took place in the 1980s that were like pivotal in terms of identity. Mm. One of them is about the black artist movement. One of them I think is about um, uh, British born Chinese artists. And you're, you're like, you, you know, you're constantly being pushed back into this decade. You know, why? And I think the reason is, is because the, the sector, the established center of the sector cannot hold actual dissensus and people at the moment, if people are politically engaged, they're looking at the system and the structure and the context and engaging with that, but the system itself can't take it. What do I mean by um, structure, system, context? I'm talking about like where money comes from, what it's doing, um, what the, the moral and ethical commitments of people in charge of institutions are, what the moral, moral and ethical commitments of individuals who work in them are as well. I mean, these all these are things. You could talk a little bit about the way in which many organisations are willing to present themselves as progressive and yet at the same time involved in, let's say, other activities that are less than progressive in that they involve offshore accountancy or other kinds of nefarious activities. Um, do you want to talk a little Yeah, and I think one of the, so essentially, we, we, we're in a climate now where to make our, you, you know, you have to be self-sufficient as a balance of self-sufficiency through part-time employment mm. and the and accessing grants or commissions because of your artistic profile. And another a big part of that is philanthropy, you know, like um, these uh, high net worth individuals who have money and decide to, you know, essentially sit somewhere, come up with an idea for a grant and, and send out a call and then people apply. Now, the problem is a lot of these high net worth individuals have like questionable alliances or, you know, have questionable moral and ethical standpoints. And one of the people I highlighted was um, Candida Gertler, who runs Outset Organization. 
No, so she, uh, the outset organisation funded a film called The Destructors by Imran Peretta. I think it was last year. And the film, like I said, it's like, I think partly charts the anxieties of Muslim youth in East London. But, you know, the contradiction in the funding comes from the fact that outset uh, and Candida and her husband hosted a birthday party for Benjamin Netanyahu, a private birthday party that he attended um, in Israel. And, you know, this is somebody that many, many people see as a controversial figure who's contributing to the, the, the persecution and, pos- and the death of, of Muslim people in Palestine now. Mm. So, you know, now the point to make is, you know, for, some, for an artist, they, they may have no knowledge of this at all. But the way the landscape is set up is that they're, they're almost set up to be complicit. Mm. You know, they're set up to be hypocritical. Like, you know, you make your work in good faith. The money comes in, you have no choice about whether or not you're accepting it, you know, and then your work comes out and then, then you find out about this, um, this uh, different sort of <laughs> relationship to the subject, subject matter that you've chosen. And, it, you know, uh, th- that sort of thing happens again and again and again with different individuals. It's not just one person. It's a kind of, it's a mode of best practice that's mm. permeated the whole sector. And I think the point, all of this was made in service of trying to have this a bit above board, but also to, to just highlight how unsustainable this is. You know, the, I, think, I think the notion of like, uh, I think human rights abuses and injustices around the world are just going to increase. And the, 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 the global, the interlinked nature of all of this stuff is going to get harder to ignore. The fact that, like, that, that, you know, offshore accounting systems exist, you know, um, you could say yeah, well, they exist legitimately for people to um, avoid paying tax, like, because that's legal. But they also exist as um, uh, facilities for people to, you know, engage in capital flight from third world countries who need that money. Also for arms dealers to ferry money around the world without it being seen. And you, you can't partake in a system with that on a neutral basis. Mm. I mean, you know, at the same time, people always often say to me, what's your problem? Why are you talking about all of this stuff? You know, why, what, you know what's it to you? And I think if these organisations didn't present themselves as moral agents, as people who are on the side of progressives, as people who are combating you know, neoliberal capitalism, as people who are against, you know, human rights abuses and atrocities across the world, then I wouldn't say anything because they have nothing to do with me. But they keep presenting themselves as people who are doing Don't be out here trying to present yourself as someone who's progressive because you're, you're stopping everyone else from doing that work. And I think that's the overarching argument that I've been trying to put forward with this series of articles is that get out of the way and the, the greatest threat to progression is, 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 the, is the notion that it's already taking place, you know? And You're right. Co- You're right. Yeah. You know, just stop doing that. Let us get on with it ourselves, I guess. Yeah. All right, Morgan. I think we'll draw a close. That seems a good point to draw a close on that. I'm sure we'll be hearing part three and part four in, in many <laughs> different guises and in de- many different forms through either your work or through your writing. So, um I look forward to that. Okay. In fact, I just want to say thanks to Art Monthly for printing it and supporting me for writing this stuff. Um, I really appreciate it. 
Okay, let's move on. And we're joined now by Stephanie Schwartz, who reviews two new books, uh, David Levi Strauss's Photography and Belief and Jörg Kohlberg's Neoliberal Realism. Uh, I wondered if we could begin by addressing Levi Strauss's uh, understanding of the term belief, as it seems as though he wants to resuscitate this term. Um, I wonder if we could start there. Yeah, he definitely yeah. is, or the way I interpret it, he is trying to resuscitate it, or that's at least the way in which I kind of approach the book. Obviously, when you see that in the title, given the way in which the history of photography, at least since or my understanding of it since the 1980s, has been very critical of this idea of belief, or we want, you know, this question of doubting photography, the kind of question of mythologies that photography tells the truth, these kinds of things. To be confronted with a book that is about belief is intriguing. And so, you know, that's kind of where I started. And he definitely does try to resuscitate it um, by, you know, basically opening the book with, um, you know, a whole series of very, you know, going back to the Bible into kind of earlier histories or understandings, etymologies of that term belief, in which he explicitly connects it with um, the question of love, which is where I actually start the. Um, review in this moment at the close of the book when he says, you know, he just kind of announces his love for photographs, which I found really interesting. And once I kind of saw that, that what the whole book kind of came full circle for me in that sense of kind of not of, of thinking about this way to both, yeah, to resuscitate belief away from the kind of postmodern critiques of doubt, but also the kind of contemporary moment that, um, you know, we shouldn't believe anything in a certain kind of way so yeah i think that's that is one of the gambits that he's mm. trying to do in that book and seemingly he's trying to track it against a sort of neoliberal condition which is always trying to undermine on some level the circumstances by which we read an image do you want to talk about that because it's kind of a hollowing out isn't it that seems to be he's he's trying to restore yeah. So, I mean, I think the place in which he does that again, I mean, he takes up these those lines from Hannah Arendt's Origins of Totalitarianism, which have been, I feel like, very much quoted extensively in the past couple of years, at least if we want to mark it through a kind of American history since 2016, um, with the inauguration of Trump and a kind of, or you know, questioning um or suggesting that we've entered or re-entered again the way in which people want to talk about this a kind of fascist moment um and tying that to a certain kind of conception of neoliberalism and so yeah i think he wants to he wants to remind us in a way that that kind of hollowing out that idea that you don't believe in any anything is the beginning of that kind of moment and that we become fractured in a certain kind of way and that there's no kind of culture to hold us if we don't have some way to believe in something. Um, but it's not nostalgic in a certain kind of way. I don't, I, I didn't, I didn't read it that way, even though he does try to kind of draw out this, this long kind of history. I don't feel like he wants to get us back to this moment when we did believe in something. I feel like he wants to kind of trace more just do a kind of tracing of a history such that we can kind of think about when did this almost desire not to believe become so powerful that now we can kind of go back and write another history of whether it's photography or kind of image culture because he is obviously interested even though the book is about photography he's interested in larger kind of questions of image cultures he refers to a range of contemporary artists very briefly but he does um 
so that we can kind of think history differently as opposed to just saying, let's go back and kind of recoup some kind of moment when we used to believe in something. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, in that sense, I think for me, that was a really interesting part of the book in that, in that sense. And it's interesting because I, I, I would imagine that some of that argument would be taken up by the move from, let's say, analog photography to digital photography. And I think we're wary of making it too simplistic or even too familiar an argument. But to some extent, that must play into some part of that subject. Yeah, he definitely... I mean, I read that as a kind of subtext. I mean, one of the, the amazing things about this book and also photography, um, the Kohlberg, is that they're very short. They're very, um, which I also think is an interesting, is interesting and important to kind of recognize the kind of emergence of these small books that want to tackle these incredibly large subjects within the history of photography, or whether it's photography or, you know, other other kind of debates within the history of art. And so they, they, they don't really go into deep historical depth on any of the concepts that they're um, tapping into. It's really trying to make a kind of, just to make an argument and make it quickly and make it forcefully. Um, and so although he doesn't go deeply into this kind of switch from analog to digital, I think the debates around that, or at least how they were being written in the late 80s and early 90s, are very much what he's trying to grapple with as well of this specifically because of this idea that photography was somehow over or dead or we have to kind of rehistoricize we have to rethink these kinds of histories of photography and where are we going to you know what is digital photography is it some kind of new thing that's totally different from the way in which we think about photography in the past or do we have to see or is that just the way we we write it you know a kind of convenient history we write to kind of celebrate something new and the you know, he he takes Flusser, the kind of two kind of important texts by von Flusser, as a way to query those kinds of histories in which he wants to suggest that um, there is a connection between um, the camera, the camera, camera obscura, and the kind of in kind of digital technologies. And that Flusser, um, that was an important thing for for Flusser, and it seems an important thing for Strauss as well. So to 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 acknowledge those histories. Mm. It's also interesting, I think this, you mentioned the sociability of the image and the, of the photographic image as well. And I think that's where maybe in Kohlberg's book, it becomes more, in the review in any case, there's a sense of it taking evidence in the neoliberal ideas of say, and they make mm. specific reference to Annie Leibovitz's photographic work and the way in which they appear. And I think that was interesting the way he seems to diagnose why does it look the way they do as opposed to what they are. Um, and I think that maybe talk about that because that's to me quite an interesting way of looking at these works or this condition maybe of making work. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, he's very interested in, uh, I mean, first of all, it's interesting to, you know, read an extended critique of Leibowitz's work or the, the Vogue and Harper's Bazaar work yeah. and yeah I mean one of the things that I pulled out from it um, was his interest in the tonalities of her work and there's been a lot of writing about this recently especially around skin tone and how she photographs black skin and he focuses on that a bit but he also just focuses in general on the kind of bizarreness of her photographs that um, yeah, he's interested in why they look that way. And then really in trying to kind of come to terms with 
I mean, what's really interesting about the book is that he's not trying, he's not trying to say, look, you know, this is a fallacy or this is not um, the way things are and we're all being duped. Although that's, you know, one way in which one could read this, but he's actually saying, because we continue to read photography this way, we fail to actually look at what's going on. We're always looking for what should have been done instead of looking at what is being done. And so if we start to look at what is being done, we can see what he calls this kind of neoliberal realism emerging in these photographs. And let, you know, he's saying, let's diagnose that. Um, let's diagnose that, what that's doing. And, you know, from where he's, he's telling us that what we see in these photographs is a kind of, you know, playing out of the neoliberal story about winners and losers. And so he, he, you know, he plays different kind of photographic practices against each other in order for us to kind of see, see the way that story emerges uh, or the way in which Leibowitz um, makes that story seen or, vis or, or, or visible in a certain kind of way. And also, um, it's interesting that the parallel corollary sort of narrative that's being placed is, is Soviet realism here, uh, which I suppose to some extent might be seen as the counterweight to some of this neoliberalism, but he argues a sort of identical um, idea of it, it working in the same, sort of, some same form of propaganda. Um, do you want to talk about that sort of narrative that is an intriguing yeah i mean that's the i mean i feel like that is supposed to be the the conceit or that is the conceit of the book yeah. or that that's what kind of hits you over the head it i if i recall correctly it is he says this you know straight up on the first yeah. page and this is my point earlier that there's no kind in these books there's very little kind of very much in the Kohlberg, there's very little you know mincing of words or kind of trying to ease you into the argument it's just like here we go I'm going to tell you that, you know, contemporary photographic culture, Leibowitz is the most, um, he gives most space to that example. He also talks about Gorski at the end of the book, but Leibowitz is really the one that I feel like he makes his argument the most clearly. And he just tells you, I'm going to argue that this is identical to Soviet realism. And of course, you know, you, that stops you. I mean, for the many obvious reasons that it stops you, one, because you can say, well, okay, but well, but what do you mean? Because are you saying that they just look alike and therefore they, you know, they're similar and then we have problems of kind of morphology or, you know, and then how do you wrap your brain, as you were saying, around this idea that these are supposed to be these kind of opposing um, systems. So that's, you know, the way in which the history has been written. Um, so yeah, and he just, he goes with that. He doesn't, I mean, he doesn't really try that hard to tell you why, you know, how he got there or what he, he just says this is what yeah. it is. And he uses, uh, you know, which at some point is a bit frustrating because when I was reading the book, I'm just like, okay, now I want to know, like, prove this to me more so than just tell me that this is what you're seeing. Um, and he uses Boris Groys's, um book on totalitarianism or Stalinism, um, liter you know, to read the photograph. So a description that Bo Boris Groys uses of a painting in that's a kind of quintessential so socialist realist painting, he then says, look, and we could use these exact words to describe a Leibowitz photograph. Um, and I guess I, you know, although I think the, that, you know, that is a, you know, that that does open up so many questions, but it, in some ways he opens up more questions than he answers because it's such a huge gambit. It's such a kind of big thing to say, 
Um, but again, the book's not, a, I mean, for me, the book wasn't about that. That's what I found was so interesting. It was like, I'm going to say this, but what I'm really trying to say to you is that I want you to read photographs differently. And that's the part that I think is really interesting because to do the, the, the first argument, we need to say, okay, well, why Groyce's Soviet realism? Like there's other definitions that could be put in place. What about the difference between painting and photography? Like there, it just opens up, all, but he doesn't, he's not going to go there because I don't think that's really what the book is about. I think the book really is about is, are we doing a very, are we doing a good job as readers of photography or not? Mm -hmm. And for me, that is what makes the book really interesting um, as a contribution to what it, what seems to be a need to reckon with how the history of photography has been written, um, partially because of what we were saying before about this, you know, insistence that we continue to believe what we see, but we are we know that we shouldn't. And so, how what what's the responsibility of a historian of photography to to respond to that those claims, but also to acknowledge that some of the histories they've written have produced those as well. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, it's incredible. I mean, also I think the interesting parts from Groyce's article uh, quotes are similar the ideas of the hieroglyphic and not the mimetic. And I yeah. thought that was interesting in the way that it opened up the space of interpretive persuasion um, and the idea that, again, that legible to those familiar with its codes is what you say. And I think it is that legibility that perhaps it's like where Soviet realism, maybe I can understand where the power of that to a Soviet might be felt is similar to the same construction as to us being, with, you know, seduced to an extent by Leibovitz's yeah. yeah, I mean, that's okay. the argument he's making. Yeah. He's saying that we've become, we can read the codes, that we like, you know, like a subject in looking at a Soviet realist painting, knows that this is not real, but this is the kind of ideology of, you know, hmm. what culture is supposed to look like or how cultures, that we're doing the same. And so leave with the photographs can be all green and blue and weird. It doesn't really matter because we're, <laughs> reading the codes we're not we're not taking this as a, yeah. a definition of reality you know this is you know this is hieroglyphic not mimetic yeah. which is so he, he does you know run very close you know he takes Royce's um lines you know to use to to, to open up the readings of those photographs yeah and i think that point that you make there the assumption is that alternatives to capitalism are now present even if as marcus fisher also argues they still need to be defined and i think that was for me, like a really interesting point um, about they are there, we are just not identifying them or defining them. And I think that is that the work that is to be, in a sense, to be undertaken, really. Um, yeah, I mean, in writing this review, I went back and reread re the, the Fisher book because one of Kohlberg's claims is that he's, you know, he's taking issue with, I can't remember the exact line, but he's taking issue with this assumption that, you know, neoliberalism doesn't need anything to sell it, that it kind of, you know, sells itself, right, you know, mm. produces itself. And he wants, so his, you know, he's saying, well, look, we have a whole photographic propagandistic culture that is trying to sell us to us. And that's also where the boy Groys comes in, because his art, you know, Kohlberg's argument is that we're starting to see cracks in the system and when we need something to shore it up. Um, and those cracks in the system are those you know, or at least the way um, Colbert writes about it are the are the moments of you know 
protest or response to the kind of neoliberal system, which we've been seeing, you know, obviously a lot of in the last couple of years. But I mean, I think, yeah, Fisher tells us this as well. It's not as if, um, if you, you know, go back to the book, although there's been a lot of, you know, the book is almost, what, 10 years old now, or maybe 11 years old. He, was, he wrote it right in the wake of the financial, uh, the 2008 crisis. Um, Yeah, so, you know, the line is that there's no alternatives, but of course in the book he does say that there are alternatives. He just doesn't, he hasn't, yeah, we can't map them out yet. We don't know what they are yet. We have to, but, you know, he's, he does open up the possibility um, for the for for them to be there. And again, that's also what I think both of these, you know, in some way these, that Kohlberg's book is trying to do. Um, although when you, you know, the examples that he give, gives are very kind of, you know, this kitschy crass kind of, uh, at least with the level, it's more so, I mean, Gertzky, it's a different story. Um, uh, but that there is an opening for something else. That's what he's trying. If, if we learn to, you know, read better, ask different questions, read differently, recognize our own places in these systems, then there is a way, you know, to see something else. I feel like that's, what he's trying to suggest in the book in a certain kind of way, that we have to be better readers of, of photographs. Let's draw a line there, if we may. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks, Stephanie. And just to remind listeners that Stephanie's review can be found in this month's issue. As art galleries are closed in the UK, if you need help finding a copy, please have a look on our website or email subs at artmonthly.co.uk for further information. Okay, let's move on to our next guest, Connell McStravick, who has profiled the work of Jamie Crew in this month's issue. Connell, I wondered if we could begin by discussing their latest work, Ashley, which was on show at Lux's Gallery and their website last month. Yes, thank you, Chris. Um, I'll do my best. Um, <laughs> so Ashley um, is um, the first film which Jamie has made where they um, act, write and direct. Um, it's also the longest work to date. Um, it's about 45 minutes. So it's not really entirely a short or a feature length. It's sort of somewhere in between. It conforms roughly maybe to the length of a, t a TV drama, perhaps the kind of work that it's inspired by. Um, so um, it actually roughly tells the tale of the eponymous character who is traveling to a remote location um, it, it's the Mull of Kintyre, I'm told, in, 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 the, in, the, in the production itself. But, uh, you know, a rural Scottish location um, in a state of some emotional and physical fragility, um, it deliberately going into retreat um, to uh, spend time alone and unpack um, a, a, a series or a sequence of unspoken traumatic events. Um, that have taken place in the past. Um, so what we see unfold is Ashley arriving um, at a holiday cottage, unpacking their things, making food. Um, the film is structured in a way like uh, Jamie's other works made in collaboration with the Tourelles, um, their long-term collaborators. Um, around um, a combination of illustrative gestures, music, um, and a, 
you know, a, a definite kind of, a kind of intimacy that's particular to their work and the construction of their cinematic language. Um, where we see Ashley unpack their clothes and, and make food um, and settle in. Um, and then um, as though through um, a, a sequence of events um, through which the narrative, the spoken narrative, which is narrated by Travis Alabanza, which sort of tells Ashley's story, a series of uh, uncanny or uh, disturbing events, um, sort of enter the frame or sort of disrupt this search for um, solace, um, safety, comfort. Um, and there's a sense in which um, Ashley is either running away from or towards, it's, it's unclear the source of trauma um yeah um, and, and and this is sort of played out through the scottish landscape in a series of 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 walks and uh explorations where this sort of fragile emotional state becomes more and more exposed and you describe it as a sort of trans horror short film um, inspired by the 1970s archival television vernacular, which references the series Signal. Um, that's a that's a typo. I have to I have to oh, um, confess. Oh, um, it's stigmata. A stigmata. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, stigmata. Um, uh, stigmata was one of the BBC uh, ghost story for Christmas series that played through the 1970s. Um, it tells the tale of uh, a family who disturb a, a stone circle um, mm -hmm. and a sacrificial burial, which releases a curse, which affects the, 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 the there's, a, there's a sort of a, a family of mother, a father and a daughter, and the mother starts to experience this unusual bleeding. Um, this enters into the script of Ashley in, in a series of sort of bodily embodied uh, events um, where um, we, we, we see a similar kind of supernatural or unexplained um, event. Um, yeah, that, that some haunts, that yeah. haunts um, Ashley. Um, yeah, yeah so can... it takes in. Sorry. Sorry, Zoom interruption moment. Yeah. Um, apologies. Um, so it sort of takes in this language that's drawn from the archive of MR James and, and I suppose the, the English sort of ghost story, I suppose the feminist sort of reenactment re, re of that um, mm -hmm. through the works of Angela Carter. And, you know, I think more recent um, queer and, and, and trans feminist literature as well. So everything from Kathy Acker to, um, um, you know, more recent authors um, who have uh, drawn out this, this sort of relationship between gender and genre, as mm -hmm. I think I, I described it in the text itself. You do, and also you talk about the relationship in those terms to the sort of, I guess, to the, the Latin roots of those terms in, in relation to 
a bigger narrative rather of birth, family and nation. Do you want to talk about, I mean, I think that's a great way of framing this subject of gender and genre. Do you want to talk about this sort of, I suppose, uh, deconstruction of these terms actually? Yeah, I think it really started with this conversation with Jamie about how their work is positioned. And I think I mentioned in the text, uh, you know, amongst ways that Jamie's work was described in the announcement of the Turner Bursary, Bursary was, um, a Turner Bursary sounds even better, um, <laughs> uh, Debursary, I don't know. Um, the um, in the description of Jamie's work, the, the use of the word identity, and then it becomes obviously a trope in the work. Um, and, you know, I, my, my reaction to that in a way was sort of um, it giving me a sense of it situating a feeling I'd had about Jamie's work developing over a number of years. And it's not just Jamie's work, I suppose, Patrick Staff. Um, has made work in a similar vein, you know, that, you know, Jamie has also appeared in Patrick's work, um, where it's a, as much about community as it is mm -hmm. about identity. Um, and I think in a way, um, gender and genre and the relationship between the, the, the root of the words and the way that those words are situated and how, how power accumulates um through the 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 you know the sort of uh, uh naturalization of the relationship between nation and family um between the nation state and family um i think sort of questioning or or, or re reappropriating forms um <clears throat> through genre um, as a critique of gender, but also of the, the power structures that underpin <clears throat> these systems of power and oppression, I think is a, is a valuable way for me to sort of engage these works. Um, but also in <clears throat> my own experience, I suppose, of being attendant to and, and a part of some of the communities that these works represent. Um, there's a there's a small bit of self-interest in there i suppose it's worth acknowledging <laughs> i wonder if you could talk a little bit about the archive and particularly the queer archive you mentioned the work of jack halmstam and i think the way in which jamie goes about making a work often includes or references historical material and reframes it through other kinds of proceeds such as trans lives or other kinds of queer narratives can you talk a bit about that yeah, so I think really in this sort of almost uh, a decade's worth of of work that I've I've seen, um, one way or another, you know, through through meeting Jamie and and seeing the presentation of various bodies of work, um, there's a way in which you know there is an archival tendency, an archival turn in Jamie's work, which I think um, reengages queer archives. Um, I think one way that that happens is through um, sort of deconstructing normative positions through a non-binary or a trans mm. um, mode of representation um, or, or to decode in a way that I suppose, you know, the canon was queered. Um, this decodes the um, the more normative aspects um, of, you know, even the, the, the queer canon and sort of forges a, 
I suppose a mode of communality, which I see as being like a non-binary constituency in a way, uh, or a non-binary communality. Um, you know, it crosses boundaries. It um, it challenges power structures that discipline or um, that seek to divide in you know in that sort of colonialistic uh, rational way. Um, and I, you know, it does it does speak to power structures, and I suppose it it speaks to um, modes of, of of communality. I suppose <clears throat> this idea of the somatic communism or or, or uh, somatic commune of Paul Preciado was quite a useful analogy that Preciado introduced in the um, Contrasexual Manifesto, um, and I think it's something that that um, I think speaks to the political realm um, in terms of the constitution of social forms and the social contract. Um, and for instance, the ways that Preciado, and I think, you know, um, I also mentioned Kid Bornstein, many trans um, commentators have, um, I think, successfully challenged the ways that. Um, these these structures oppress these structures divide um in an effort to seek um a, a more radical political and cultural constitution that i think draws in these um legacies of uh transness and queerness and you know that really sort of complicate these power structures and i think yeah. art has an important role in that in in those in those in those formulations well, in the sense that yeah, they in a, they become the repositories or the collections through which these archives may be visible or may be discernible. Is that mm. is that where I mean, in a way, Jamie's work is kind of unpacking or unpicking some of those legacies. I think it says something about the difficult work that that has to be done mm -hmm. as communities, uh, as communities that are LGBTQ plus identified or identified other other ways. Um, that's about so much more <clears throat> than just finding terms, mm. um, which again takes us to the text which appears mm. in Jamie's pastoral drama, which is an address through different constituencies um, and different personages, um, an appeal to not being addressed a certain way um, mm. or being a certain way and for me this says something about <clears throat> gender identity of course but it, it also says something about um being an artist it says something about sort of the um the communal effort and the emotional effort of of being someone that that makes things and has a public life um has a public role has a vocation um and a, and a way in which it compels um, an audience to sort of challenge the the the, the binary of the the artist audience relationship. Um, and you talk about the sort of ways in which the theatre directs and constructs the viewer. Um, I think that's interesting if we think about yeah the ideas of visibility and Jamie Cruz trying to sort of in a way look back and look forward at the same time. There's a sort of double step. Yeah, no, I, I think there's a there was a, a really interesting 
conversation developing around the uh, the appearance of that work within a sequence of works and how um, up to and including um, Ashley, I think Jamie was trying to question or problematize the idea of appearing in their own work mm-hmm. um, and therefore becoming uh, almost a, a figuration or a figure with it within their own work as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think <clears throat> questioning that, that gaze, questioning that sort of um, that power relation um, was, was, was achieved through different means. So um, in pastoral drama, it was invoking the bimorphism of, of um, uh, Orpheus in Eurydice as, as these two, uh, you know, the, the sort of heterosexist um, sort of logic of, of the, um, the Eurydician um contradiction i think it's called by by sort of creating these twin narratives between orpheus and eurydice and um Eumelio where um there's a more kind of homosocial tale um where um at the same time, you have this, not bimorphic, sorry, dimorphic, that's the word I was looking for. There's a dimorphic strategy in play. Um, I think um, Jamie was, 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 was folding references to themselves into the remaking of the story at the same time that it levers a space for a different constituency. Um, and a different idea of self, a different way of forging an, an image text that doesn't conform to um, the rules imposed upon it, at the same time that it acknowledges that um, the prohibitions on looking directly at one in a way that becomes the, 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 um, the thing that you know, ultimately means you lose the object of your desire, um, becomes a, a sort of a, a mythological uh, analogy, I suppose, of the risks of living publicly as as trans or gender nonconforming. So in a way, that kind of that 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 element of the the tale is sort of extracted; it's distilled at the same time that the the tale itself is deconstructed. I think. There's a certain other worldliness as well in Jamie Crew's work. The the blurring of the senses and sense perception, and that's something again that really comes through in Jamie's work. I think of it not just being about um, looking. You know, I think looking is for me in Jamie's work almost a way of touching as well. There's a real intimacy in the use of the the camera um, and self touch as a way of sort of recentering oneself. Um, you mentioned a little of the writing of Susan Stryker. I wondered if we could return to their writing from the 1990s and specifically the subject of horror and queer lives and bodies. Um, I think Stryker's use of Frankenstein's monster as a way to challenge um, gender conformity and particularly the sort of pathologization and medicalization of bodies at large um, 
I think for me is the sort of like biggest sort of cultural and political potential in that um, in that sort of moment. Um, and I think it is a sort of like academic activism moment. Like there's a real sort of attempt to sort of bust out of um, the, the confines of queer theory as well. Um, you know, I think I think that moment sort of happens in parallel to Preciado writing the countersexual manifesto. There's a sort of a there's certain affinities there in terms of a rethinking um, of the deconstruction um, mm. of um, the the body uh, in, mm. in, 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 and, and maybe some of the the limitations of that sort of queer um, reinstrumentalization of a discourse. And I think Stryker attempts to do that in the context of the, the queer uh, 90s. Um, and in particular, to sort of challenge the pathologization, the medicalization of trans bodies, um, and to sort of um, speak to a, a history of um, transsexuality um, mm -hmm. as something that was dealt with as being monstrous. Um, and sort of re-instrumentalizing that as a way to talk about trans, transgender experience and transgender radicality and gender rad radicality. Many thanks, Connell, and many thanks to all our guests today for joining and discussing their articles, all of which appear in the current issue of Art Monthly. And many thanks for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>